very excited that we are able to offer a Financial Peace University class starting this week, actually on Wednesday night, and um, we would invite you to be a part of that. I don't know how things were with you when you were growing up and how well you were taught or figured out money management principles, but for me, I didn't. And I got in a lot of financial trouble and made, a, as David would say, a lot, of, a lot of stupid early on in my life as, uh, as a young adult. I still remember the feeling of exhilaration when those credit card offers started coming in as a college student. And I thought, wow, I qualify for a credit card. I felt like I was in an elite club, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, as Dave would say, the club of stupid, because I ended up getting into a lot of credit card debt really, really, really quick. Um, so one of, the, one of the great benefits that we have as God's people is when we learn to manage God's money God's way. And Financial Peace University will equip you to be able to do that. Some of us have this illusion that as soon as I get more money, I will be able to do more than I'm doing right now. But what I have learned is that bad money management principles will follow you no matter how much money you have. They will follow you from when you have no money, and they will follow you when you have lots of money. And, and Financial Peace University is a way of just sitting back and saying, okay, let's, let's evaluate what God's Word says, and let's evaluate the best ways to handle the money that God has entrusted to us. So this class will be kicking off Wednesday night. Um, it is still open to sign up if you would like to. There's still space in the class. Um, Lisa Newberry and Darren are going to be helping to facilitate the class. Lisa, if you'll raise your hand just so people can see you. Lisa is going to be available at Central Station right after church. If you would like some more information about the class, or if you've already signed up for it and haven't picked up your workbook, she will have those available, and you can meet her there and get more information or, or get your book. Um, there is a discount if you sign up through the church and talk to Lisa. We're able to kind of offset that some. So uh, check, check her out with that. And I encourage you to come and take advantage of this class. Also, one of the things I wanted to, to highlight as far as our seating project is I want to say a very special thank you to a couple of groups of people. First of all, to the, and if I made everybody stand up, it would be two-thirds of the crowd, to all of you that showed up very eager to demolish the old pews that were in here several weeks ago. So we had a huge crowd come out here. Um, we, had, we had, you know, 50 men bringing their own personal tool bags in here. It was really, really a fun sight. Um, but we, those guys and, and ladies that came to help us with, with taking everything out, boxing up all the hymnals and the, and the Bibles, and, and then helping us to get the pews out of there, thank you very much for all of you that did that. But then we also had a very special team that was put together for the, for the task of, of making this decision and bringing it to us as, as a church. They, they were charged with the task of, of researching uh, what options were available out there, what would be the best option for us, and, and, and I think they did a fantastic job. And so if you are part of that Pew Committee, would you just stand so that we can recognize you for, for your involvement with that? I didn't ask your permission to do that, but I know that uh, if you were, would you please stand? All right. And Mr. Larry Monk in the back, so thank you very much. You guys did an awesome job, so thank you very much for your, for your bringing this and, and, and our enjoyment. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want you to open up this morning to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking today at 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13, and we're going to be going through chapter 2 verse 3, as I want to talk to you this morning about what it means to be living examples of grace. We're continuing through this journey through Peter's epistle to, to the exiles of, of Asia Minor. 
in which he calls all of us as Christians to be kingdom exiles with living hope in a world that isn't really our true home and isn't our final destination. And so far we've seen Peter offer a blessing to God. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's singing a hymn of praise to God. And what is he praising God for? He's praising God for the great salvation that God has given us as believers. And he reminds us that that salvation, that's what we've been looking at in verses 3 through 12, that salvation that he has brought us serves as a fuel for you and I to live with hope in a world in which we as Christians and followers of Jesus Christ will endure suffering and persecution for our beliefs. And so he sets the groundwork early before he even gets into practical instruction about suffering and how to suffer well. He reminds us that the fuel for suffering, the fuel for enduring, the fuel for living with hope in this kind of sometimes hopeless world comes from the power of God's grace inside of us. And so today he's going he's gonna to complete that thought by turning to some practical exhortations. He's going he's gonna to say, because of this, here's some things that you and I need to do in response to that. And so today we're going to be looking at the subject of living examples of grace. And the main thought that we have today is just simply this, that, that we as believers are called to display publicly the beauty of the transforming grace of God in the places where God has sent us. Let me say that again. We as Christians and as followers of Jesus Christ are called to display publicly the beauty of the transforming grace of God in the places where God has sent us. As we've said all throughout this series so far, you and I are kingdom exiles in a world that is not our home. Yet, even though that is true, we are called to be exhibits of the life-transforming power of the gospel. You and I are called to be trophies of grace. You see, God makes the reality of the gospel visible through us, the church, through people like you and me who are not what we should be, but by the grace of God, we're not what we used to be. Amen? We're trophies of God's grace. We've been changed by grace. And that grace not only changes our positional standing before God, it also changes how we live in this world. How many of you ever received a trophy for something that you did before? Anybody? Anybody received a trophy before? We live in that culture now where everybody gets a trophy, right? participation trophy culture and you just you know you sign up and 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 sign up to play sports or sign up to do something you're going to get a trophy at the end that's another sermon for another day but but many of you will remember what it was like to get a trophy that was a reward for something that you did or something that you were a part of for me it was when I played in seven and eight year old baseball. Now I played T-ball, but this was this was that that first level where you had to actually play where somebody where an opposing player was pitching the ball to you. And I think it was around seven, eight, nine years old. I played on a team called the SM Small Motors. Because back then all the all the teams were sponsored by local businesses, you remember, right? And so we were SM Small Motors, and we were, we were playing during the mid-70s during the craze of Cincinnati Reds, so we were the red machine because our, our uniforms were red. So we patterned ourselves after the Cincinnati Reds. And we, we had a really good season that year, um, and we, were, we went to the, the final game, the championship game, against another team, which I'm pretty sure had 10, 12-year-olds playing on their, on their team. And we were the underdog. 
and we came in second place. And I received, and back then, not everybody got a trophy, okay? Back then, you only got a trophy if you came in first or second. You may have got a trophy if you came in third place in the league. I can't remember. Um, but the, the first place trophy, you know, was like seven feet tall, you know. But the second place trophy was about eight inches tall, you know. I, I still remember it was about this big. And it had my name on it, and it, you know, it's a seven and eight year old baseball, S&M Small Motors Red Machine, Matt Haynes. I remember being so proud of coming in second place out of the other teams in the league, and, and we put that trophy on the mantle over our fireplace. And that trophy stayed there until I went to college, I think, right? <laughs> because I, I would look at that even when I stopped playing baseball, and I would remember what it was like to play on that team and, to, and to, to do your best and to come in, in this case, second place. We didn't win at all. And for me, that trophy may have been eight inches tall, but, but to me it felt like it was about two feet. And it was just something that I always remembered fondly. I think it's in a box somewhere in my mom's attic now. I don't, I don't, I don't have it anymore. But many of us remember what that feeling was like. Well, that's what he's talking about today as he's saying that as followers of Jesus Christ, God puts us on display to the world. And he says, because of that, there are some traits that you and I need to exhibit as trophies of grace. So I want us to read the text this morning, starting in verse 13 and going through the first three verses of chapter 2. He starts with the word therefore. Therefore is a transitional word. What he's doing here when he uses the word therefore is he's about to attach the practical exhortations and the, and the, and the commands or the, or the imperative statements that he's about to make for you and me to do. He's attaching that to what he said previously. And so he's attaching the imperative commands of God to the indicative realities that God says about us. These things about the grace of God that's been displayed to us. So therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, the Lamb was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or visible in the last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news, or the gospel, that was preached to you. So, put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation 
if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. When I looked over this section of Scripture, this past week I actually saw probably two or three sermons within this passage. It's a very long passage, and, and I had initially thought about breaking it down, but really what I saw was an overarching command from Peter of, of, about what it looks like for us to be examples of grace to the world. And Peter gives us really five traits of kingdom exiles in this passage of Scripture today. Five traits that help us to live as agents of hope and gospel transformation in a world that is not our home and in a world that doesn't always adhere to our values or appreciate our our message. So let me talk to you about these five traits. What does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus Christ. Well, the first thing it means is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we hope forward. We hope forward. He says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We said a second ago that he's attaching this command, this first one, to set your hope forward to the realities of what he's already said about what God has done for us in the grace of Jesus Christ. The call to obedience and holiness is rooted in the realities of God's grace that he has shown us as his people. So let's remember what those graces are. In verses one through three, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says we are saved to a living hope. And that hope that we have as Christians is grounded in the gospel transformation and is a byproduct of God's redemptive work in us. We said that that he, he reminds us that hope is not to be diminished by the presence of trials and suffering, but hope is actually strengthened through trials and suffering. And then last week in verses 9 through 12, we talked about how this life-changing work of God that has, that has transformed our lives is grounded in the eternal Word of God, that Word that was accurately predicted for hundreds of years by the prophets, that Word that was faithfully proclaimed by the apostles, almost all of them up to their eventual death, and that Word which was personally delivered not only to the prophets and the apostles, but also to you and me by the Spirit of God. And so Peter says, because of these things, then you and I need to prepare our minds for action. Do you see that? Therefore, preparing your minds for action. In other words, you and I need to start thinking like gospel-transformed people. If the gospel is true, if all the things that Peter has said in verses 3 through 12 are true... If God has born us again, caused us to be born again to a living hope, if if God has, has brought about redemption through His Son, if God has changed our lives, then you and I need to start thinking like gospel transformed people. You see, the battle for righteousness always begins in the mind, not the body. The battle for righteousness and holiness and and the battle for living for God doesn't begin with making changes in our life. It begins with changing the way that we think, allowing what most controls and influences our thinking. And one of the things that's hard for us to remember is that the Christian life is not meant to be lived on autopilot. There's no such thing as getting saved and then winging it and doing the best you can until you die or Jesus comes back. That's completely foreign to the New Testament. 
We aren't supposed to just go through some religious rituals and then God just says, okay, 50 years from now you'll die or I'll come back one or the other and then we'll take care of the rest of it then. That's not what the Christian life is about. Paul reminds us in the book of Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. In other words, where there's to be a change in the quality of our life. Our life is not to be conformed to the, to the patterns of a lost world anymore. There's to be something distinctive about us. But, but Paul tells us where that begins in Romans 12. He says it begins by the renewal of your mind, by changing the way you think. You're to start thinking like a gospel-transformed person. And then Peter says, as a result of preparing your minds for action, then the next statement that he says is, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying, set your hope forward. Set the target of your hope as a follower of Jesus Christ, not on the reality of what's going on around you. Set your hope as a follower of Jesus Christ, not on the glory of days past. Too many times we, 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 we have this nostalgia in Christianity that, that tends to believe that the best days of the Christian movement in America is behind us. That the best days of our church were 20, 30, 40 years ago. But if the gospel is still the power of God to change everyone who believes, then that gospel is still powerful enough to change this church and that gospel is still powerful enough to change this city. We don't need to live in the past. We don't need to live in the, in the struggle of the present where we're seeing the culture around us making it harder and harder and harder to actually be a person who believes that the Bible is the Word of God. Don't, don't set your hope on this present world because it's going to disappoint you. And don't set your hope in the past, which, which may have been the better days for you as a follower of Jesus Christ, but set your hope forward. And you need to hope to the glories of grace that will be brought to you when Jesus fully and finally completes our salvation and our redemption in this world. As long as we believe and know that Jesus Christ is coming back, there is always hope for the believer. Because our hope is not based on our circumstances. Our hope is grounded in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. The gospel-transformed mind is one that sets its hope towards Christ and His return. And the Christian's hope is about what awaits us in the future, about the full realization of God's grace that will be revealed when Jesus returns. But not only does he say we need to hope forward, he says we need to be holy. We need to be holy. He says in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. There's a theme in those three verses. Do you see it? It's the word holy. He, comp he compels us to be followers of Jesus who commit to living holy lives. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He reminds us that when we were saved, there was also a change in our familial situation spiritually. We were adopted into God's family. 
When we became a follower of Jesus, we didn't just become a member of a local church. We became a child in the family of God. We now live under the fatherhood of God the Father in our lives. And because we belong to God, there should be a compulsion in our lives to obey our Father's commands and to follow our Father's desires for you and me as obedient children. Now, he's not talking about obedience like you and I often talk about with our kids, which is, I'm your father and you must obey me. He's talking about the fact that we understand the the greatness of God being our father and we desire to obey him. We desire to please him. We desire to do things that bring him glory and honor. That's what it means to be obedient children. And then he says, because of that, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't don't go back to what you used to do when you didn't know the gospel, when you didn't know who Jesus was. There should be something distinctive about the way a follower of Jesus Christ lives that's different from the way he or she used to live used to make decisions, what used to be important to them. In other words, he's saying don't go back to living lives of blinded passion like you did when you didn't know the gospel. Don't go back to the passions that controlled your lives before you came to know what Christ has done for you. One of my favorite preachers is Matt Chandler. And Matt Chandler told a story one time about the time when his family in in Dallas, just they bought a new home. They'd been living in one home for about eight or nine years, and they made the decision to buy a new home, so they sold their house, and they purchased a new house. And for the first two or three months after they bought the house and moved into it, it created quite a challenge for Matt because what would happen is when he lived in his former home, he would go to the end of the parking lot of their church, and it was a red light there, and at that red light, he would take a left, and that would go to his former home. But his new home was actually required him to take a right out of the parking lot. And he would say over and over and over again, he would just kind of go on autopilot and he would drive up to the red light and take a left only to start driving in the opposite direction and remind himself, you bonehead, you don't live that way anymore. And he would turn around and go back to where he was supposed to. And that's what Peter is saying here. You don't live that way anymore. You don't live in that direction. You don't live under those values. You don't live under those actions anymore as a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Your life now is governed by a new set of values and priorities. And your life should reflect the glory of the gospel and the God who saved you. In other words, we should be holy. Now, we often think of holiness as a list of things that we don't do anymore, right? I remember when I became a Christian, they told me that Baptists don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. You remember that? It was all about Baptists don't go see these kind of movies. Uh, Christians don't do this. Christians don't dance. Christians don't drink. Christians don't do that. And so I was given this list of all these things that were supposed to mark Holiness. That's how oftentimes we think of it. We think of holiness as putting on a bunch of external mannerisms. We change certain things externally. But holiness is not that. It goes much deeper than that. Holiness carries a two-part connotation. And the first part of that is moral purity. 
It means that our behavior changes and that there are certain things that we no longer engage in that we used to before we came to know the gospel. That's one part of holiness. But the second part of holiness means to be separate from, to be separated to. It means to completely separate ourselves from sin's presence. Holiness means there's to be no quarter for sin in the life of a Christian. We are to do anything and everything to distance ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ from sin and ungodliness. That's what it means to be holy. It means that because the gospel has saved us and because the gospel has changed us, that we want to separate ourselves from decisions that we once engaged in that didn't reflect the glory of God. That's what it means to be holy. It's, it's a change in behavior that's wrought from a change in our position before God. And he says, you are to be holy for I am holy. This is an important reminder that you and I cannot, be, cannot keep the command to be holy apart from the gospel. You and I cannot be holy on our own effort. When, Jesus, when Peter says here and quotes God saying, be holy for I am holy, we need to be really careful about that as Christians because sometimes we think that holiness is solely a matter of our personal effort to change. But the reality of the gospel is that if you had it inside of you to change your life under your power, you would have already done so. You can't change your life under your own strength and under your own power. That's why you and I as followers of Jesus Christ need the gospel just as much today as followers of Jesus as we did on the day that we trusted it and became a Christian. You could never be holy on your own in the first place. But the gospel empowers us to holiness. So the first step that we need, or the first trait that we see, is that we are to hope forward. The second trait is we are to be holy. The third trait of Christians, or kingdom exiles, is that we are to fear God. We are to fear God. Verse 17, he says, If you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Peter reminds us that what motivates personal holiness is a reverential fear of God. What motivates us as followers of Jesus to live sacred lives that reflect the holiness of God is to get a larger view of God's holiness in our lives. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah went into the temple to conduct his duty that day, to do something that he had done routinely as a priest for many, many times. But he goes into the temple, and the Bible says that when he went into the temple, something transformative happened that day. And immediately he was, he was captured with a vision of God. He saw the Lord, and he says he was high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. There was this glory throughout the temple, and there were these angels that were circul circul uh, circling around the Lord, and they were singing these songs, and, and they were singing about the holiness of God. And do you remember what Isaiah's response was when he saw that? Do you remember? He didn't say, Wow, look at that. That's pretty cool. I think I'm going to take a selfie here and post it on my Instagram, right? <laughs> look, I'm with the Lord. You know, he didn't do that. What was Isaiah's response when he saw the Lord? Woe, woe is me. 
And immediately he said, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. What was going on there? When Isaiah saw God in his true holiness and majesty, his first response was fear, terror, dread. And not only that, he immediately recognized his own lack of personal holiness. He confessed that he was a man who spoke things that he shouldn't have spoken, and he lived among a people who didn't speak the way they should, who didn't honor God with their lips. You see, holiness is born out of a reverential fear of God. And most of the time, the reason why God's people in our culture live lives that are in compromise to the Word of God is because we've lost sight of just how majestic, how glorious, and how holy God really is. You know, if if you and I really were able to capture a sense of how holy and how powerful and how awesome and how glorious our God is, it would motivate us because we would be motivated by reverence for Him. Probably the greatest need in the contemporary evangelical church is that we need to recapture a biblical fear of God. We've spent so much time in the contemporary church trying to personalize God and trying to make Him to be our friend that we have forgotten that He is our sovereign, holy King. And in the process, we've turned the mercy of God into permissive passiveness where God really doesn't hold us accountable for unrighteous choices. And we've turned the grace of God into a blank spiritual credit card with unlimited balance to forgive sin. And in the process, we've lost the fact that the Christ who has saved us and redeemed us from sin is not only is not our spiritual buddy who overlooks our mistakes, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords to whom we must submit. Peter says that you need to fear God. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He tells us, first of all, that God is one who calls on everyone impartially. He reminds us that God is a judge and he judges all people without partiality according to each one's deeds. You see, you and I need to remember that God doesn't hold you responsible for other people's choices, but he doesn't hold other people responsible for yours either. And that God doesn't grade on a scale. We have this tendency to do that. Well, you know, I think I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) I look around at some of the people in our world, I look around at some of the people in my family, or I look around at some of the people... That, that I work with, and you know, I think I'm doing pretty good. Well, here's the problem. God's not comparing you to them. God's comparing you to Himself. And He doesn't grade on a scale. And He doesn't compare your B effort with somebody else's D effort. You see, fear of God is not just being afraid because God is powerful enough to zap you and take you out of this world. That's not what the fear of God is. Fear of God is a sacred reverence in your heart for who God is that motivates us to live lives surrendered to His purpose and to live for His glory. That's what fear is. It's just reverence. It's understanding that every time you and I come into this place to worship, we sing songs. And we enjoy the songs that we sing, many of us. But it's not about a matter of our enjoyment. It's a matter of whether those songs exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of whether you like the beat or you get much out of it or I think I'm going to go somewhere else because I kind of like the way they sing these songs better. It doesn't matter because worship is not about our entertainment. Worship is about exalting Jesus. 
Churches are not about what you get out of it. Church is about what you are giving into it to help exalt Jesus. It's sacred reverence. And again, he, he alludes to this change of spiritual address when he says, Know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers. You've been changed. You have a different, a different spiritual address. You don't live that way anymore. And he says that you and I were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, remember what your salvation cost, Jesus. And if you will remember what your salvation cost, Jesus, then you will conduct yourself with reverential fear in this world. There will be a reverence for God that will, that will dictate your life, that, that motivates you to make the holy choices that God has called you to. People shouldn't say, well, why do you live the way you do? Well, I'm a Christian and I go to church. That don't mean anything. You say, you know, why I, you know why those things are not part of my life anymore? Because many years ago, Jesus Christ revealed to me how much he loved me by dying on the cross for my sins. And I've made a decision that I fear him enough and I revere him enough that those things ought not to be part of my life anymore. That's what holiness is. It's not a list of boxes that you check in order to conform into a Christian culture. It's about saying my life's not going to be marked by that kind of stuff anymore. And it's because I fear Him. But fourthly, he says for us to love earnestly. Love earnestly. Peter reminds us in, in verses 22 through 25 that our souls have been purified by obedience to the truth. In verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The, the Greek construct here that says obedience to the truth signifies that now we are enabled to love one another rightly in the church because our souls have been changed. They've been purified. We have had a soul cleansing. And because God has cleansed us internally, we are now, we are now empowered to love one another rightly. Here again, we see that the fuel for living the Christian life comes from responding and trusting in the gospel. The gospel and our trust in it has purified us and empowers us to keep the commands to love one another. Because you see, without the gospel, we cannot love other people the way we are called to love them because our sin always causes us to love others wrongly. We love people for what they can do for us. We love them because of the perceived value that they bring in our lives. We can't truly love others like God wants us to because our lives are imbalanced, like a, like a car running with four tires out of balance. But once we have tasted the love of God for us in redemption and the purification of the gospel in our souls, we can now love one another in the church with a sincere, gospel-soaked love. Let me ask you a question. Do you love your church? Do you love your church? This is your church. Look around. Do the people that you are gathered with here, do you, do you love these people? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Not a superficial, yeah, I love everybody here. Yeah, yeah, I love everybody. Do you, do you love the people in your church? Do you love them earnestly, as the Scripture says here? reality of it is that many of us barely know the brothers and sisters that we sit alongside of every week 
how do we measure gospel love in the church? Love in the church is measured by relational investment. Love is measured by committing to accomplish the one another commands of the Bible. Things like to pray for one another and bear one another's burdens and to confess your sins to one another. And that's why it is critically important that Christians commit to living life in biblical community with other Christians in smaller groups. Because how do you faithfully pray for one another in a group this size? How can you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ that are in this room right now when you don't even know their name, some of them, much less what they need prayed for? How do we go about confessing our sins to one another in a setting like this? That'd get kind of bloody, wouldn't it? We're going to have a confession session and we're going to have everybody confess your sins from this week, all right? Jamie, you go first. He wouldn't mind it. He'll just start saying stuff. I know Jamie. We'd all of a sudden get real uncomfortable. But the Bible tells us we're to confess our sins for one another that we may receive healing. How do we do that in the church? How do we bear one another's burdens? How do you bear other people's burdens in this place when you don't even know what those burdens are? You do that in smaller groups of Christians that are, that are relationally invested in one another. And if we are going to survive as kingdom exiles in a fallen world, we must do so together. And to do this, we must repurpose our group settings, our Sunday school classes and small groups to be places where biblical community can thrive and where we can engage in God's commands. We're to love each other earnestly. But finally, if we're going to be kingdom exiles, we are to feed on the Word. Feed on the Word. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, slander, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Apostle Peter is telling us that if we're going to commit to be holy people and if we're going to commit to be people who love one another earnestly, then it's going to mean that you and I are going to have to put away certain things from our gathering as Christians. We're to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. You know what that is? This is what happens when people commit to true biblical community in the church. This is what happens when God's people commit to personal holiness and to love one another earnestly. Because in a gospel-saturated people, there is no room for maliciously hurting others in order to get your own way. In a gospel-saturated people, there's no place for deception and hypocrisy. The church should be a place where we all lay down our mask and make ourselves fully known to one another because we are fully loved and accepted by God. And therefore, we should fully love each other. In a gospel-saturated people, there's no place for envy or jealousy or slandering brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would tell you that where those characteristics exist in a church, malice, Envy, deceit, slander, hypocrisy, where those characteristics exist, it's because that church has lost the gospel. But Peter goes even deeper and he says that kingdom exiles can only live with hope in this world when we feed on the pure word of God. He illustrates the believer's relationship with the word of God with the beautiful picture of a mother nursing her infant child. And that infant child strongly desires his or her mother's milk. Not just because that child has a nutritional plan that he is following, but because he knows that that milk is good and he strongly desires it. 
I have four boys. One of them has a birthday today. I won't tell you which one, but one of them has a birthday today. And when each one of my boys were infants, we never had to guess when they were hungry, right? They let us know every single time they were hungry. They strongly desired to eat, and they let us know each and every time. And Peter is saying that you and I, if we're going to be kingdom exiles in a, in a world that's fallen, if we're going to live with hope, then you and I need to have the same craving for the Bible, the Word of God, as a baby does for its mother's milk. There should be something inside of us every day that craves time in God's Word. And there's something in us that understands that we cannot be nourished and grow into salvation, as Peter says, unless we're feeding on the Word of God. It's a truth that has stood over God's people for centuries, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we cannot survive in the Christian life apart from growing in God's Word. So as kingdom exiles, you and I are called to live with hope in this world where those without Christ will often ridicule and marginalize and persecute us for what we believe and how we live. And yet, we are called to be people who hope forward. We're called to be people who pursue holiness, who fear and reverence God, who love earnestly, and who feed each and every day on the Word of God. These are the traits of kingdom exiles. May God find us faithful. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We're going we're gonna to transition over into a time of invitation and response. And the reality of it is, is that I would be amiss if I gave you a, a nice five-part how-to message this morning without offering you an opportunity to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the reality is that if, if you're in this place today and, and you've never truly placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can't hope forward. Your hope is in this world. You can't be holy because you don't have it in you. You can't really fear God because you don't really know Him. These things are only possible when someone has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe today the Spirit of God is speaking to you and he's, he's speaking into your heart. He's revealing to you your need to trust Jesus Christ. Not to go through some religious motion and check boxes, but to really believe the gospel and to place your faith and trust in Him today. And so in just a moment, we're going to sing a song of response and invitation. And during this song, we want to invite you to come today and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. So if you want to be saved today, you can come forward and just to see me and say, Pastor Matt, I need to give my life to Christ. Maybe you need to come today for some other reason. Maybe it's a burden in your heart that you need prayer for. Maybe you need to come today because God's revealed to you that you need to be a part of what's going on at Central Park and you want to, you want to be a member here. You can do that today as well. Whatever it is God's calling you to do, you be obedient to Him as we sing. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I pray that you would, you would speak to our hearts right now. Reveal to us what you would have each and every one of us to do. To be doers of the word and not just hearers. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, sing, and respond as the Lord leads you today.